On Christmas Eve in 1906, Professor Reginald Fessenden in Brant Rock, Massachusetts, made a radio broadcast. He played a recording of Handel, then he took up his violin and began to play O Holy Night. Uh, and then he read a passage from Luke chapter 2, which we just heard. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. As far as we know, this was the first radio broadcast ever made in human history. Uh, the audience would have been radio operators in ships off the east coast of the United States. The Navy had been broadcasting daily weather and time signals and reports since 1904, but that was in Morse code. You can imagine Fessenden uh, standing on the cusp of a new era of human communication. This at a time when the human voice had never been heard live and disconnected from the immediate vicinity of the person to whom it belongs. There he was, speaking on an unproven device, sending sound waves out into the void, hoping that somebody was on the other end listening, maybe checking his mail during the week to see if there was some return to his message. He concluded his broadcast by wishing people a Merry Christmas. Now, I want to imagine you to imagine yourself with those radio operators as you sat at your post on that Christmas Eve in 1906, expecting to hear just the familiar noises of the Morse code signals. But then, without warning, a voice breaks out, a human voice and strains of a well-known carol, and perhaps you join with the words of those carols singing, Oh, holy night... The night, we get to sing it later on. <laughs> Our theme uh, this Christmas at St Andrews is Christmas Playlist. We're thinking about our favourite Christmas carols, these old songs which communicate ancient truths about real people in a real place, responding to the birth of a real child. And so here's a question for you. How would you respond to the incredible message of that first Christmas? I'm not talking about... How you would you respond if you were one of those radio operators hearing that historical moment, Oh Holy Night, being played on the first ever radio broadcast? I'm talking about how would you respond to the news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has been born into the world? Well, I think we get three clues from both this carol and the passage in Luke 2 about how we should respond. Firstly, we rejoice. Uh, the carol says, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appears and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. We sing, a weary world rejoices. Why do we rejoice? Well, I think it has something to do with the situation that we're in. And notice the phrase, long lay the world in sin and error pining. The world lay in sin and error. This means that there is something fundamentally broken about our worlds. And it doesn't take us too long to realize that. All we have to do is open up devices and look at our news feeds to realize that this world is broken. War in the Ukraine, famine in East Africa, global warming, more refugees 
at the moment than at any other period in world history. The world is weary with its continual brokenness. But it's not so much the world that's broken, it's us, it's our hearts that are broken. The Bible gives us a profound and uncomfortable diagnosis on our own condition. Now, if you're sick and you go to the doctor, to make you well, the doctor is not merely going to treat the symptoms of your illness. It's no good for you to have measles and the, 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 the doctor just puts band-aids over your spots. No, he has to treat the underlying virus. Our underlying problem is the sin in our own heart. Now, that doesn't mean that you're a terrible person, you're a criminal or something like that. And sin is not merely just breaking some simple rules. Sin is fundamentally got to do with our, about our heart, about how we push God to the sidelines of our heart. Sin and our own hearts are our underlying problems. Now, this sounds a little bit weird, but are you a dog or a cat person? I wonder if you've ever noticed the difference in how dogs and cats relate to their owners. A cat will look at its owner and say, well, you feed me, you clean up after me, you shower with me with affection and care and shelter, I must be God. Whereas a dog look at its, looks at its owner and says, well, you feed me and clean me, you shower me with affection and care and shelter, you must be God's. Now, if it comes down to a choice between pets, I, I am a dog person, I'm not really a cat person, but I can't say that that's always my attitude with God. There is a book called Cat and Dog Theology, which talks about when it comes to us and God, our attitude is that of a cat. Um, we, we seek to mainly get out of our master what we want from him. Yes, the average person believes that there is a God, there is a God of some sort who exists, but we mainly want to get through life in the safest, easiest and most comfortable way possible. And we want God to get us things in the safest, easiest and most comfortable way and keep all the difficulties and hardships and trials and afflictions of life away. Life is not about God, it's about me. So here are two questions to ask yourself, whether you've made God your master or whether you're still calling the shots. First of all, are you willing, are you willing to obey anything the Bible clearly says for you to do, regardless of whether you like it or not? And secondly, are you willing to trust God with anything he sends into your life, whether you understand it or not? If you can't answer yes to these two questions, then okay, you might believe that God exists, but you've never really said to him, God, I want you to be the center of my life. But notice what this carol says, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appears till he appears. The Bible tells us why Jesus appeared. In the Bible reading we heard earlier, the angels said to the shepherds today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. Elsewhere in Matthew's gospel, the angel speaks to Joseph and tells him the reason for the birth of this child. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus appeared to be a saviour, to rescue his people from their sins. Maybe you remember the story of the rescue of that boys' soccer team in the cave in Thailand many years ago. The story dominated the news and now 
There is a documentary made about it on Disney+. Plus. We love, people love a rescue mission. Uh, one of my favorite movies is called The Martian. Uh, it's the story of an astronaut who, who is unintentionally left behind on Mars by his crew. After NASA and his crew realize that he's still alive, everyone, everyone involved moves to save his life before he runs out of food, before he runs out of his potatoes and he dies alone on that planet. Now, I won't ruin the ending for you, but he makes it back in the end. Uh, <laughs> And at the end of the movie, uh, as, he reflects, as he reflects on his rescue, the astronaut Mark Watney says, I think about the sheer amount of people who pulled together to save me, and I can barely comprehend it. The cost of my survival was in the hundreds of millions of dollars, all to save a botanist with anti-authority issues. Why bother? And that's an important question. Why, why bother? Why do people care? Why do people bother? It's a good question. Why do people spend millions of dollars to save a team of boys in a, in a Thai cave or even one man who's stuck on a planet? Well, I think part of it is how we're wired. Uh, we're built to have a salvation narrative within us. And you may not realize it, but the underlying theme of history, in fact, the whole relationship between God and us is a rescue mission. That's the whole point of the Bible. God is on a rescue mission for humanity. And the climax, how it all happens, is through Jesus. God steps into history, onto the world stage, in the most humble of ways. Through a baby. Weak and vulnerable. Jesus walks into history. He lives and teaches. He does extraordinary things. But ultimately, he ends his life upon a cross. That's where he rescues us, by taking upon himself our brokenness, our rebellion, our rejection of God. He lived the life that we should have lived, died the death that we should have died. On that cross, he wins for us forgiveness, the embrace of God, peace, eternity. If you want to understand why Jesus came to earth, you've got to take this child out of his manger and put him on the cross. That's where he rescues us. That's why at that first Christmas, we can sing those words, there's this thrill of hope. A weary world rejoices. God has come to do something about our brokenness. He's come to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So we rejoice, but secondly, be comforted. The King of Kings lay thus in lowly manger, in all our trials, born to be our friend. He knows our needs, to our weakness is no stranger. Now this carol speaks of the common human experience. It speaks of weakness, trials, difficulties. We all experience suffering as much as we might try to ensure our life, safeguard our life against troubles. None of us can escape it. Often during trials, we need a counsellor. And the best counsellors are those who themselves who have been through a problem. They've gone through hardship and they've made it through to the other end. And now they're able to speak with wisdom and care to those who are going through the same problems because they understand what it's like to be there. You know, we all go through seasons of life where we feel acute difficulties. We think that no one understands. No one really knows our particular situation. And it can be an intensely lonely time. You might feel 
shame, abandonment, a sense of, a sense of isolation. But what does this carol say? Well, it says, He knows our needs. To our weakness is no stranger. You know, the incredible claim of the Christmas story is that God became one of us. The King of Kings lay thus in lowly manger. Thousands of babies have grown to become kings, but only one king, one king ever has become a baby. Most world religions are founded by someone who says, I've, I've, I'm here to give you information about God, but Christianity is different. Jesus doesn't just say, I've come here to give you information about God. He says, no, I'm God himself, come among you. The author of creation enters into our mess, a child needing to be taught how to, to walk and speak, experiencing hunger and thirst, difficulty and pain, frustration and hurt. If Jesus really is God made flesh, that it means he's walked this road of suffering long before we did. He experiences everything that we can possibly experience in this life. Hunger, homelessness, frustration, rejection, betrayal, injustice, grief. To our weakness, he is no stranger. Are you misunderstood? So was he. Are you lonely? So was he. Are you broke? So was he. Have you been betrayed? So was he. Are you facing death? So did he. Look, we can ask that Mark Watney question. Why does he bother rescuing us? Why did Jesus bother leaving all he had, you know, the perfections and glories of heaven? Why did he bother becoming a vulnerable child, susceptible to all the difficulties of life? Why did he bother going through the humiliation and pain, abandonment of the cross? Why did he bother for this species of creature who have consistently rejected their maker? Well, it's because he thought we were worth it. You know, there's never been a stronger statement of the dignity and worth of humanity than this. God becomes one of us. God dies for us. That's how we can sing till he appears and the soul felt its worth. God turns up in our mess because he loves you and he thinks you're worth it. So we rejoice, we're comforted, and finally... We behold, led by the light of faith, serenely beaming, with glowing hearts by his cradle we stand. So by light of a star sweetly gleaming, here come the wise men from Orient lands. This carol is asking us to put ourselves in the shoes of the shepherd and the wise men who went that first Christmas to go and see this child. You know, the angel said to the shepherds, uh, when the angel said to the shepherds, there's an older translation, a very old translation, which they say, fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy that shall be for all people. Modern translations usually skip that word, behold, because it seems like archaic English. But there's actually a corresponding word there in the biblical text. The angel is literally saying, don't be fearing, be perceiving, for I bring you good tidings. I bring you a great message. And the message is, behold, do not be afraid. 
Think upon who Jesus is and what he has done for you. Behold, gaze at him, reflect upon him. Think upon who he is and what he has done for you. And then the fear disappears. Regardless of what season you go through in life, when you look at Jesus, the fear disappears because you realize in Jesus God is for you and God is with you. Therefore, you can face anything. You can even face your death without fear. So in your hearts, go with the shepherds and the wise men this Christmas. Go in your hearts with them, accept this Christmas invitation and behold him. Behold the king and before him gently bow. Amen.